0: 1 Corinthians 1, 17-21. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is the word of God. So today we're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk specifically about how the cross divides humanity into two groups, and how we have to properly understand it if we want to experience the power of the cross in our own lives and in our church. At IGC, one of the things that we've, uh, one of the phrases that we've used before is we want to be cross-centered. So about 10 years ago, this phrase cross-centered was kind of a, a popular phrase in certain circles of the western church there were cross-centered music albums you guys remember this cross-centered conferences cross-centered books and preaching and I haven't heard this phrase as much recently uh, but I still appreciate the emphasis on the message of the cross the message of the cross and yet I think we've perhaps gotten so used to the concept of the cross that maybe it doesn't stir us maybe it doesn't agitate us as much as we might need to be we're now at a point in history where we can care about the cross and not be shocked or not be scandalized by the idea we've become comfortable and maybe this is a problem it's interesting to note for any historians that the cross wasn't depicted in art until the fourth century and this is when the Emperor Constantine outlawed the practice of crucifixion. And did you know this? That it wasn't until the 9th century that crosses began showing up in churches. Can you believe that for 900 years after the church began, there were no images of the cross in these churches? It wasn't until people forgot how gory and how violent and horrific the cross was that the cross became a commonplace image. The cross was a form of torture. It was a form of public shaming for the worst criminal offenders. And maybe we can hardly understand just how scandalous the cross is in our modern day. Because we see it so often. And we might become immune to the effects of it So when Paul, as we're reading this passage, when Paul reminds the Corinthians of the message of the cross, there must have been something in them that recoiled when they heard that we preach a message that's centered on the cross. You can imagine that there are some people in the Corinthian church that have witnessed torture on the cross. They've witnessed people be executed on the cross. And when they heard about the message of the cross, they're thinking, this is an ugly sight. So for us to understand the weight of what Paul is talking about in this passage, we need to understand how scandalous the message was to the original hearers. So like I mentioned earlier, the cross was an instrument of death. It was an instrument that was designed to prolong the suffering of the victims. I'm not sure if we have a modern equivalent. We might think of a noose. This is something that people die on. We might think of a table where lethal injection is administered or maybe if you've ever seen images of war dead soldiers on the ground would you wear this image on a t-shirt the cross in addition to being an instrument of death was an instrument of shame the victims they were stripped naked before they were put on the cross their flesh was torn open by the nails that fastened them to the wood they were lifted up for hundreds perhaps thousands of people to see it wasn't uncommon for the victims to completely lose control of all their bodily functions. Urine and feces would drip down their legs and every bit of dignity was stripped from the victims as they were up on the cross. So when we think of the cross, we should be thinking suffering, ridicule, wailing. Think of this when you think of the cross. And it's it's difficult for us because we've never, none of us, I don't think, have ever witnessed this. It, it's difficult for, us to, uh, difficult for us to understand how grotesque, how stomach churning the cross really was. So this morning, just for the next few minutes that we have, I want us to look at how humanity, how we are divided into two types of people by the message of the cross, by the word of the cross, Paul says in our passage. And today's message is going to lead into next week's message, which will focus on how this this word of the cross should shape and define what we do as a church at IGC. So just two points today in your bulletin. Number one, how the word of cross is folly. And number two, how the word of the cross is the power of God. So our first point, how is the word of the cross folly? Paul he, like I mentioned, is writing to a Corinthian crowd. And when we began our series in 1 Corinthians, we mentioned that Corinth was a major trade hub in the Roman Empire. There were Greeks and Romans and Jews. They all came together. There were religious people, irreligious people. There were people from all socioeconomic levels. And even though it was commerce that drove the city, Corinth was also a vast marketplace of ideas. All these different types of belief systems and worldviews coming in to this one place. And each idea and each worldview, they made noise. They were attempting to draw people into their way of thoughts. Now Corinth was not unlike the Bay Area. The values that the Corinthian culture held are not all that different from the values of our own culture. Think of what you read about in the news, the pursuit of power, the accumulation of wealth, the desire for control, admiration for the talented, for the beautiful, for the experts. And the way to win in life, the way to succeed was to be all these things, be influential, be strong, be respectable, be savvy. So Paul, as he's writing to these Corinthians, he's aware that they're not sheltered from these ideas. In fact, this, the message of the culture seeps into the church. The Christians, they understood the temptation, the pull of all these things. If you look at verse 19, Paul includes this quote. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. So here Paul, he's actually pulling this quote from Isaiah chapter 29. This is a reference to Israel's plans to protect itself from an attack from their enemies, the Assyrians. So their plan is to form an alliance with Egypt so that Assyria won't attack because Egypt is a much more strong military political power. But their plan backfires. The Assyrians, they learn of Israel's plan and they end up attacking Israel before this alliance with the Egyptians is able to be formed. So the Israelites, are invaded and then defeated. And as, Paul, as God is telling the Israelites in Isaiah, He's telling them, do you you think you're smart? Do you think that your plans are better than mine? You try to play God and now you're going to suffer defeat. Now you're going to suffer humiliation because you would not trust me. You trusted in yourself. And Paul includes this passage as a way of telling us that we're all in the same boat. If we think that we can trust anyone besides God... He says you think you're smart? do you think you can outwit the ways of the world of your enemies that says let's see how that works out for you so Paul he puts this w- word of the cross in front of the Corinthian church and he asked them this question verse 20 where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age these are the three types of messengers. These are the three ways in which we, as we imbibe their message, as we absorb it and listen to it and take it to heart, these are the ways in which we try to play God in our own lives. So I want to take just a few minutes to go through each one of these. For the sake of time, I won't be able to go into these as in-depth as I would like, but I'll expand a bit on these uh, next week. So first, there is the wise. So Paul, he's writing to these Corinthians, and there were several schools of thought that were very popular. Uh, in in first, first century Corinth, there were the Stoics, the Stoics that believed in self-control and temperament. They believed in confidence, in taking responsibility for your own life. You are in control of your own life, the Stoics said. Or there were the Epicureans. These Epicureans, they taught that it wasn't really possible to know if there was an afterlife if there was something or someone to keep you accountable so what should you do with your life eat drink and be merry enjoy all that the world has to offer live as you like because who knows what's to come in the next life if there even is one think of hedonism uh, another school of thought the platonists the platonists they believed in ethics and living a virtuous life because there was maybe perhaps some sort of transcendent reality but that reality this whatever it was that was keeping them tethered to their morals to this good way of living it was disembodied it was impersonal and these philosophers these very wise people the Corinthians considered them they designed these schools they designed systems of thought to explain how reality works how the world was They they gave organizing principles for understanding life, and this is what we might call a worldview. We all have a way of looking at the world, and here are some worldviews given by these wise men and women. These voices, they promoted a type of wisdom that was about self-advancement or self-expression or perhaps being more in control of your own life. And wisdom is not a bad thing, except if we look at the Bible, there's a type of biblical, godly wisdom that's about proper living, about knowing your place in the world. But this is not biblical wisdom. Here's a type of wisdom that is interested in what can you do for yourself? How can you take control? How can you be smarter than the next person to advance? So... This is a first century problem. It's also a 21st century problem. Think of what's on the New York Times bestsellers list, or if you listen to TED Talks, or if you listen to podcasts. I've listened to Bill Burr, Brene Brown, Gary Vee, Olivia Wilde, she has a popular podcast, Simon Sinek, Jocko Willink. Are these not people that we look to as experts? They're wise. I wanna listen to these people. So here's the first type of person. The second type of person describes these were, in Paul's day, the experts in the law. These were the academics. These were the scholars. And Paul here is specifically referring to the Jewish scribes of the day. These were the religious people who who understood the law, the Torah. People looked at them for answers on how they should best approach life. And in these days, we can consider that these scribes or these experts in uh either the law or or just reality uh, a version of reality we have people like this in our day as well think I'm gonna put two schools of thought in front of us think the moralists these are the peddlers of religion or a way of living that promise salvation or quote-unquote salvation by adherence to a set of principles their message says Blessing will come your way by obeying this set of laws. Blind obedience to the rules is the way to live. And those of us who grew up in some type of religious environment, we might have experience with this. So there are the moralists. But on the other hand, who are the other types of scribes or the uh, experts of our day? Perhaps secular humanists. Those who view religion or any type of organized system of belief as harmful, as oppressive, as maybe even evil. Consider the atheist Christopher Hitchens. I've quoted him in the past. I really enjoy reading him. He's he's actually fun to read, but this is what he said. This was his critique on Christianity. It's a bit long, so listen to to what he says. He talks about how there's so much suffering and pain in the world, and there are all these religions that try to answer Why is there such a thing as pain and evil and suffering? So here's Christopher Hitchens. Heaven watches with this complete indifference. And then 2,000 years ago, thinks, that's enough of that. It's time to intervene. And the best way to do this would be by condemning someone to a human sacrifice somewhere in the less literate parts of the Middle East. Let's go to the desert and have another revelation there. This is nonsense. It can't be believed by a thinking person. Why am I glad this is the case? To get to the point of the rawness of Christianity, because I think the teachings of Christianity are immoral, the central one is the most immoral of all, and that is the one of vicarious redemption. You can throw your sins onto somebody else, vulgarly known as scapegoating. In fact, originating as scapegoating in the same area, in the same desert. I can pay your debt if I I love you, I can serve your term in prison if I love you very much, I can volunteer to do that, I can't take your sins away because I can't abolish your responsibility, I shouldn't offer to do so. Your responsibility has to stay with you, there's no vicarious redemption. There very probably, in fact, is no redemption at all, it's just a part of wish thinking. Here's this world-renowned expert saying, the story of Christianity that, Christianity that tries to explain suffering and tries to explain how it is that someone could die in the place of someone else, this is ridiculous. This is nonsense. Here's Christopher Hitchens, a modern day scribe, the third type of person, the debater. So this was in a culture that valued rhetoric. The Corinthians, they, they idolized those who could influence others by their persuasive powers and when Paul refers to, to the debaters, he's bringing to mind all the great popular speakers in Corinthian culture. These are the smart and articulate, those who could argue you into a corner and they could form, their form of presenting the message was just as important as the message itself. So we have those today as well. Think of the men and women who have a platform and an audience today. The entertainers, the socially savvy. I think of the first person that came to mind was John Stewart. John Stewart was in the news just last week. He advocated for the first responders of 9/11, and he was instrumental in getting the passage of the 9/11 Responders Act passed last just last week. Here is a debater. Here is an articulate, intelligent person that someone will listen to. Or uh, sometimes, if I'm at the at the gym, I watch. I don't watch, but on the television there is, have you guys ever watched this, The View or The Real? These are, uh, I don't know if you're watching it, but it's there, and they exi- these shows exist because people listen to them. They're expounding some type of way of thinking. They're trying to convince us of something. A few years ago at the Pew Research Center, they published a study, and it said that Gen Xers and millennials, they look to Comedy Central as their main source of news. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This today is one of the primary sources of news for perhaps some of you. I watch it. This is where I get some of my news. If you've ever watched the show, you know that they're not just giving news. They're giving you a way of thinking. They're giving you a world view. And it goes on easy because it's wrapped up in humor. Or if you've watched any of the comedy specials on Netflix, Almost every single one of these comedians is either underhandedly or blatantly trying to convince you that their worldview is right. Just watch any of the comedians, they're trying to tell you something. They're not just entertaining you, they're trying to tell you that you should think a certain way. I'm not saying that their point of view is wrong. I'm just saying that these people, they matter in our society because we're willing to listen. So these are the messengers that Paul talks about. These are the wise, the experts, the, the talking heads that grab our attention. They're telling us to think they're telling us what to think, they're telling us how to live. And more often than not, it's a power it's a message of self sufficiency and personal freedom, how to have power, how to take control of your own life. And this is what the Corinthians were hearing, and this is what we're hearing today. And then there's this message from this small sect of people called the Christians. It's the message of an all-powerful, all-wise, transcendent God who humbles himself to become a man. And this is not a man who possessed political power or military strength or social clout. He came from a small region of no repute, Do you Remember? When people heard about Jesus from, uh, from his hometown, they asked, can anything good come from that? Jesus had no home. He had no bankroll for his followers. He preached the message of repentance and the kingdom of heaven. And these are not the sexiest of topics. It probably wouldn't be a TED talk today. Jesus spent most of his time with losers people that no one else wanted to to associate with. He entrusted his mission to nobodies. When his enemies came looking for him, he didn't put up a fight. When he was accused of crimes, he didn't defend himself. When he was pushed around and tortured, he accepted it. When he was dying on the cross, he spoke no evil of his tormentors. And now, how is this for powerful? Does this jive with the message of the culture? And now do you see why the message of the cross is folly? The message of the cross, it goes against our natural understanding of reality. As long as we want power, as long as we want to live in a reality that prizes self-assertion and celebration of self, we're never going to understand the cross. It's always going to be foolishness to us. Actually, if we look at the original Greek, it's not The word "foolish." This is foolish is a mild word for for what's really being communicated. The word is literally translated into what we would use as "moronic." People people that viewed that heard the message of the cross, they thought, "You've got to be a moron to 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 accept that, to believe that." So our second point: If the cross is folly, how can it be the power of God? So here is Christopher Hitchens again, the atheist. I've met some highly intelligent believers, but history has no record to say that he or she knew or understood the mind of God. Yet this is precisely the qualification which the godly must claim so modestly and so humbly to possess. It is time to withdraw our respect from such fantastic claims, all of them aimed at the exertion of power over other humans, In the real and material world. Here is again Christopher Hitchens saying, do you know what religion has done? Religion has been used as a tool to oppress people. It's been used as a way to put people under your feet, to control them, to to instill fear in them. Now, with all due respect to Christopher Hitchens, he's completely wrong about the Christian message, about the word of the cross. Now, there may be, there have been people that have bastardized the message of the Bible. They've dishonored the name of Christ. The story of the Bible is never about exerting control over the masses. The word of the cross is one of weakness, of humility, of approaching your enemy and laying down your sword. And this is what Paul means when he talks about the folly of the cross. The message of the cross stands in such stark contrast to what we hear from every corner of our culture. The Christian message, the word of the cross, is built on death. The leader we follow laid down his life for you and me. And even though he was God with all the rights and privileges as creator of all things, what does he do? He lays down his rights. He humbles himself into the dirt to be trampled by his creation. This is not the message of the culture. Not in 1st century Corinth. Not in 21st century Bay Area. This is the message of foolishness that you and I believe if we accept it. The gospel is that you and I, we've spent our entire lives trying to be in control of our own lives. We've valued our autonomy Above God, we've offended our Creator by not living as we were created. And yet, 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 He loved us so much that He gave us Jesus to live the life that we could not live, to receive the punishment that we earned on the cross that we were talking about. The horrific, grotesque, unbearable, beautiful, 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 beautiful cross. And after Jesus died, three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that death itself could have no control over him. And because he did this, we can live. Because he did this, we can say, I can entrust myself to a God who would do that for me. And now we can live. We can live lives of humility and suffering and love. We can carry our cross. We don't have to celebrate how strong and powerful we are, because you don't need to be that if you believe in the word of the cross. What kind of worldview could ever do such a thing? What kind of worldview could ever think of such a set of beliefs? And yet this is the power of God that Paul talks about. Verse 21, it says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Every other message promises life by pointing to the power within. Have you heard this? That you yourself possess such creative power and imagination and love. Or by the wisdom and strength of other people. But did you know that your, your problem is not that you don't understand how powerful and beautiful and sufficient you are even though this is the message that you hear all the time. I go on Instagram, I see people post, I am enough. I am beautiful. Everything I have, I have in myself. That might sound inspirational, but this is not the message of the cross. And our problem isn't that we're not resourced enough. It's not that we don't have enough books or speakers or mentors or people to take care of us or teach us. It's not that we're in the wrong social circles. Our biggest problem is that we are alienated from God. And the word of the cross points us to God and it brings us to God. Because all that we need is found in Him alone. Our deepest desires are found only in Him. Every other system falls short. But God reveals himself through this foolish, foolish message of the cross. And if we understand it, then we can experience and understand the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God because it leads us to God. The word of the cross is the power of God because it leads us to God. God takes the gods of our culture, power and wisdom and He turns them on their heads. And if you want life, if you want real power, then look to the one who died. Now this, I had to cut out 20 minutes from my message. There's so much more I want to say, so I hope that you'll be with us at Marshall Elementary next week. Um, Next week we'll look at the, the following verses following uh, in the rest of first corinthians and i'll expand on what i shared and we'll consider what it means to live under this message uh i want our church to be a church that is submitted to the power of god don't you want that don't you want to be a church that honors god and we're going to hear how the cross shapes what we do as a church will you pray with me Father, here we are, a a bunch of fools, a bunch of morons that believe the word of the cross. And thank you for humbling us so much that we would say, yes, that's a message that I'll hear. There's a message that I will accept. That the God of the universe condescended, was humiliated for our sake God, and I pray that this truth would shape us as a church. I pray that you would press this truth deep into our bones and that it would change us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.